Hello, my name is Franco, and I'm the editor here at PropMoto. Thanks for listening to this podcast about affordable housing. This is just one episode in a series where I interview people working to make housing more affordable, to understand why affordable housing is not only one of the most important things that the property industry should be addressing, but how it is one of the biggest opportunities as well. Thanks for listening. When people talk about affordable housing, they're usually referring to government subsidized rentals. And whenever you find government subsidies, you will also find a long, complicated, and often contentious conversation around the purpose of the programs. When it comes to government subsidized affordable housing, that conversation often revolves around what the desired outcome is for the people who go through it. For many, the end game of subsidized rentals is upward mobility, helping people out of poverty. Since homeownership is one of the main ways that Americans accumulate wealth, it is sometimes seen as a necessary component of affordable housing. But as one of the experts I talked to pointed out, the goal of affordable housing is much bigger than just transitioning people into homeowners. Um, David A. Smith, I'm the founder and chief executive of the Affordable Housing Institute, which is a U.S. 501c3 public charity uh, that has as its principal business model uh, low bono consulting for what will broadly be called the good guys. The object of the exercise is to improve housing affordability and quantity by changing the ecosystem in which housing is created or improved and in which housing finance is delivered or underwritten. Before we got into David's views on the relationship between homeownership and affordable housing, he gave me what might be the most succinct definition of what exactly affordable housing's role is in our cities. The market price of housing is an output consequence of the median income of the people who want to consume housing. It's one thing if there's infinite land and land is cheap and you can always develop new but most jobs are created in the urban environment and the urban environment is supply constrained a little bit. And so the price of housing tends to be set at the level that middle income people can, can afford. And when I say the price of housing, it's not just the construction cost, but it's also land price. So places that have rising population and rising job growth, land prices go up. In order to produce affordable housing in that context, you either accept substandard housing, which is the market solution, or um, you live far away from your job, or somebody comes in and in some way or another subsidizes the difference between what you can afford to pay in some form or fashion and what the market cost of that housing is. David makes an important distinction. We often interchange the concept of affordable housing and housing affordability, but they are very different things. Many people point to the need to increase the general supply of housing in order to make housing more affordable. But David has a more nuanced explanation of why we need subsidized affordable housing. Why are people not able to buy houses? One reason is lack of down payment. Another reason simply is that your income level isn't high enough to support the 
loan payments you need, even assuming you can find the down payment. So that most of the people who are not homeowners are unable to be homeowners because they have not really a housing price problem per se, but they have a problem of what you could call locational poverty, meaning they are poorer than the housing cost in the location they're in. There are plenty of places in America where housing is very affordable. Um, Milwaukee, Buffalo, New York, upstate New York, uh, and all kinds of places like that. There's, there's plenty of affordable housing. <clears throat> it's just there aren't jobs there. So it's the interplay between the income that you earn or can obtain um, and where you want to live and work and the cost of the housing where you want to live and work. It's understandable why people focus on the supply side because the temptation is to say housing prices are too high and that's the reason they're not affordable. But that's a further challenge because if you're looking at the inputs to the price of housing, they are land, development approvals, construction materials, and construction costs. And it's not self-evident how you push any of those things down without compromising quality, size, location, amenities, the kinds of things that people don't want to compromise on. David argues that there are a number of benefits of owning a home that can also be replicated in affordable housing. I, I can identify seven different elements that people normally associated with home ownership, many of which can be achieved in rental if, okay, if the rental is not, let's call it slumlord rental. The first one is, I'm going to use the term not quite right, but quiet enjoyment. You're, you are safe inside your home. Your possessions are safe inside your home. Your loved ones are safe inside your home. Nobody breaks down the door and gets in. The fundamental element of personal security of self and possessions and loved ones. Okay, that's the first one. Which, again, if you're homeless, you don't have that. If you're living from night to night, you don't have that. Next, security of tenure. Confidence that you will not get kicked out on short notice. And even more strongly, confidence that if you do your um, bit, if you pay your rent or your mortgage payments, long as you keep making the payments, you can live here as long as you want. So security of tenure is a big deal because it's very hard to plan your future if you don't know where you're going to sleep tomorrow night. Third one, improvability. People want to own homes in part because the first thing you do when you have a new space, you take possession of it by moving stuff around. Check into a hotel room, move into a new apartment. Check, hotel room's the easiest one. What do you do? You unpack your stuff. You rearrange the stuff that's on the little night table. You put your stuff in the bathroom. You put your stuff in the closet. You get rid of the stupid magazines that they've got there. You put them someplace out of the way. You, you, you reconfigure the space in, in non-permanent ways to adapt to your desire. You can't improve a rental without the landlord's permission. You're very aware of that. And more importantly, if you improve a rental and move out, 
the value of your improvements is lost. So it's harder to be person, it's hard to be personalized and it's harder to be more valuable. That's the third reason. Fourth one, I can control how much it costs to live here. If I own my home, I got a mortgage payment, which is a fixed payment. I got a real estate tax bill. I got a utility bill, which I have some idea about, and I can control it if I want to because I can turn the air conditioning up or the heat down. But if I'm a tenant in an apartment, they potentially can raise the rent whenever they want. Maybe I've got a lease. Maybe I haven't got one. So that's controllable occupancy cost. It's important to note that controllable occupancy cost is the economic security of tenure. And the security of tenure that I was describing is the contractual or legal security of tenure. And the security of your possessions is the practical, physical security of the law of the jungle or the police. Okay. So those are the, those are four, they're absolutely fundamental and these go in order. Those can be delivered with affordable housing. And it's important to understand that all contractual affordable housing that we have by law or program or otherwise, those four things are mandated by contract or regulation. There are, that you get contractual protection that's not just landlord tenant, but landlord government tenant. The first four benefits that David identified can be provided to people who don't have the means or the desire to own a house. There are also three more benefits to owning a home that cannot be reproduced with housing programs. If I live in a house for a long time and inflation does what it does and I make the payments that I make and I've improved my house over time, my house is going to build up equity value. It's going to be worth more than, the, than I paid for it. It's going to be worth more than the loan that's on it. And I would like to be able to finance against that from time to time. It's a major source of new business formation in America is people take out loans against their house or they start a business in their house, but typically they take out loans against their house. So that's the fifth one. The sixth one, someday I'm going to move out. And when I move out, I want to sell. And when I want to sell, I want to capture, I want to capture the value of all of that sweat equity. Or if I, if I'm not selling it, I want to pass that on to my children or my grandchildren or otherwise. Uh, homes are an inherited asset and they're a transferred asset and both of these things are valuable. So those are the six, right? And then, there, then there's the concept, right? in other words, I have a right to sell with the sixth. And the seventh is that when I sell, I cash out my equity. Splitting the benefits of home ownership into these two distinct groups helps refine our thinking about what can and should be incentivized when it comes to supporting struggling citizens. While a path to homeownership can be the very thing that might help some people out of poverty, it might not always be the best situation for everyone. Then the next question is, do you want to buy the other things? the other benefits of home ownership. And not everybody does or should, because while I'm, I'm a homeowner, if I'm a homeowner, I have to fix it myself. If, if I'm a homeowner, I got to pay the real estate taxes. If I'm a homeowner, 
um, I've got to do all of the maintenance. If something breaks, it's my own problem. I don't have the, so I, the irony of being a homeowner is you're not just in control of your occupancy, but you're, you have the responsibility for doing a lot of things. And by the way, last point, homeownership is not very mobile. If I own a home and I suddenly get a job on the other side of the country, well, I got to sell the home and that's hard. If I'm in a rental and I get a job on the other side of the country, all I got to do is move out and maybe I lose my security deposit. So to become a homeowner is a much bigger financial commitment and it reduces your optionality. So it makes a lot of sense for people to be homeowners for some part of their life, but not all of their life. David obviously sees the path to homeownership as important, but thinks that it shouldn't be the de facto purpose of affordable housing. Instead, he sees the future of affordable housing including a number of important services, ones that can help get people, both financially and behaviorally, to where they need to be in order to even think about purchasing a home. A lot of affordable housing in the U.S. now has been focused on permanent supportive housing or housing plus services, where the idea is very specifically that we're going to put you in stable housing. It's called housing first. We're going to put you in stable housing. But um, in addition to that, we really would like it and we hope you would like it if we can put you together with a program of change so that whatever has made it hard for you to be independent goes away. You know, that, that you gradually regain your or, or reclaim your independence. And when that happens, you can move out of supportive housing and beyond moving out of supportive housing. That, that's when you can move up into middle income housing and with any kind of luck, become a homeowner. And, and everybody, everybody that we can move from dependence to independence, I'm for. But it does, it takes some, now you're getting into the realm where you're interacting with people's history and their behavioral problems or challenges and all of that. And, and people have to be willing to do that. We get into issues of well, what, what behavior do, should we expect from people who are benefiting from um, subsidy benefits? So much of affordable housing has nothing to do with property at all. Getting someone into a stable living situation is almost always key to helping them better their lives but it only works while the other things impairing their improvements are dealt with too. This can often mean that the property owners and managers of these units have to wade into the murky waters of social services, which can seem like quite a deviation from their core competency. But for real change to happen, thanks to affordable housing, that transition is necessary. Plus, after talking to a lot of mission-driven professionals in affordable housing, they seem more than willing to take on the challenge. Luckily, they have experts like David there to help them. I would like to take a minute to thank the sponsor for this series, MRI Software. 
One of the things I learned researching affordable housing is that to operate at a high level, or to even operate at all really, you have to be very efficient. MRI has software designed to help managers of public and affordable housing be more efficient, more sustainable, and more profitable. They have been trusted for years by all types of real estate companies to help them expand their capacity and maximize the value of their portfolios. Check out what they can do for you at mrisoftware.com.